I feel like we had lucked out more so with our recent films, and I kind of even got to where I forgot some of our early struggles with finding good films, and here we are again with another not very good movie. <laughs> this movie sucked. <laughs> yeah. This movie was not fun to watch. <laughs> I was thinking like, oh man, like it's only an hour and 41 minutes, like hell yeah. I don't have to spend an inordinate amount of time watching this. It felt like it was hours. I didn't even finish it in one watch. <laughs> it's only an hour and 41 minutes, and it took me three watches to get through it because it's that bad. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's not good. And it, it's one, two, so it's a 1978 TV movie, uh, The Winds of Kitty Hawk here that we're talking about. Uh, but it's like not on Rotten Tomatoes. Like it's an NA slash NA on Rotten Tomatoes. It's a 6.4 on IMDb, which isn't horrible but like there's just nothing really going on here okay did you actually go and read any of those reviews because i did oh man hit me with them okay so it's not they're not they're not bad or anything but i think the re- <laughs> i think the reason it's that high because 6.4 is honestly respectable way higher than yeah. i would expect it to be but i think that the people that reviewed it only gave it a high rating because it's technically historically accurate like most of it is just is like true yeah it's actually is pretty accurate even though you don't want to watch it the historicity is is pretty good maybe to a fault yeah I, maybe hey they spent months just doing the same thing over and over again now watch yeah <laughs> yeah now yeah <laughs> Yeah, Wilbur Wright uh, was, you know, not very personable. It's, that's exactly what we see. I was gonna, I was gonna ask about that. The actor is horrid, but I'm also like, or is Wilbur just a boring person? He's so deadpan and like unemotional the entire time. Right, but why would you, why would you make that, that that performance choice though? It's so bad. It's so bad. Like you can, I feel like there's good ways to play the kind of guy who doesn't care about anything doesn't you know isn't super emotional um is mostly just focused on his work there's a way to play that well we've seen it no, right before right. Dis- disaffected is probably the word yeah it's it's and i and i didn't recognize that actor but apparently he's uh, was a regular on law and order like he had like 80 some episodes listed on law and order i, I didn't recognize anybody in this movie no right right oh uh, a couple looked familiar but then i looked them up and i was like nope no idea <laughs> oh i i didn't even have that so okay so it did it did win an emmy for sound mixing <laughs> which uh, sh- uh, sure <laughs> i don't even understand what's happening <laughs> <laughs> but you would think that this story like, it could be a decent movie. Yeah, they just didn't do that. <laughs> right, but I'm, I'm saying how has how has there not been... Like, there's there's a ton oh, of documentaries right. out there on the Wright Brothers, but this was, like, the one, you know, narrative film that we found that we could even do. Right, that's why we picked it. It's, like, the only narrative one we had to choose from. Yeah, why is there not more? Right, because... Well, it's interesting, too, because they set up, though, like, even with the... You could definitely do something with Glenn Curtis... And we'll get more to, like, these guys as we go here. But, like, Langley doesn't sound like there was actually really much of an antagonistic relationship there. Other than it was kind of this race, worldwide race. But as far as uh, making Langley an antagonist, that didn't necessarily seem to fit. Curtis, however, who they don't introduce until, like, the last third of the movie, he could have been your antagonist. Right. It's it's like a, it's like you're watching a movie and the villain switches halfway through. Not even halfway. Like, two-thirds of the way through. 
It's like, oh, we actually, so we defeated the one antagonist, and now it's just a new antagonist. But there's only 20 minutes of movie left. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, so the, the broad, we've kind of already hit around it. The broad strokes of the film are, it's just the, we see the Wright brothers as these uh, bicycle shop operators with their father. That That's all accurate. And then they're also then dabbling as like a side thing into gliders, which were a worldwide phenomenon, phenomenon at the time. People all over the world were building these gliders with varying degrees some manned some unmanned but like no one was actually flying in the sense that we would think of it today it really was just like gliding which you see is like parasailing and stuff or whatever you call it like people just cliff diving and more of that kind of stuff but there was no like yeah. controls and like and sustained flights of any of any length and then we just see them but we just watch then hours oh yeah it's always an hour 41 41 minutes but you're watching for hours and hours as <laughs> it's just okay they're gliding they're gliding and it, it was it did give me a little bit of an insight to like i was kind of confused what they were doing at first like they're kind of just gliding i'm like this isn't a plane this is a glider but then it's like basically they were just testing their aerodynamics out with these gliders and then right. as they get later in it they add then a motor to that so that all kind of makes sense and then you're just balancing against then the guy Langley in DC that's kind of doing the same thing and trying to be first. So it is kind of this race to be first, but it's almost like that. That's it. That's it. They don't really give us anything else. The characters are uninteresting. They kind of hint here and there about their relationships, but not really. And Wilbur, who is the main character has the, you know, personality of a, you know, a soggy potato. I don't know. <laughs> so that, that's the movie. That's the, the, the end. No, sorry. I guess. Yeah. And then in the final, Third, you get a little bit of that rivalry with Glenn Curtis, which we will talk about, and that was again mostly mostly correct. Alexander Graham Bell is actually almost kind of a villain behind both Langley and Curtis, so it's almost like is he the real antagonist? But if you're going to do that, then like maybe have him meet them at some point. It's all just kind of this bizarre thing. Yeah, and you're almost making it sound even better than it is because <laughs> we don't actually get to see any of that because the movie is so low budget because it's a it's a made-for-TV movie from 1978, so we don't even get to see, like, they have somebody come to them and just tell them, just in words, in exposition, <laughs> oh, yes, didn't you hear the news that Langley crashed his aerodrome into the Potomac? Oh, did you hear the news that it happened again? It's like, why can't we see that in a scene? Like, I, I get the budget constraints. Yeah, they, can't, they can't afford it, yeah, yeah. Right, so then don't make the movie. Pushy has gone back to his home planet. <laughs> if you can't afford to make the movie, then don't make the movie. <laughs> the flying scenes are also pretty horrendous. Yeah, oh, the ones where it's like, well, if, there was a couple where I was like, hey, how did they film this? And then there's the other ones where I'm like, oh, that's just a little puppet on a model. It's like Charlie Chaplin in Gold Rush, only yeah. uh, 50 years later. I'm pretty sure on the the one shot that you see of the aerodrome where it's flying unmanned, I'm pretty sure you can see the wires oh. dangling it as yeah, it flies yeah. by. And then, yeah, and then the rest of the, the shot, they're all, like, super quick cuts. Like, it's very clearly just, like, a little a puppet, kind of like in Gold Rush, a puppet on a little, like, a crane that's, like, being, you know, dangled over the set. It's, like, it's not, it's not good. Yeah, it's uh, pretty bizarre. I guess the broad strokes, I mentioned the gliders. And they were very very dangerous and we kind of see that addressed in the film what we see the accents in the film they then you get their parents that are very concerned about this as a hobby there was a a german inventor that was actually doing very well with these and but then his glider stalled out and crashed and he died so it was uh 
it was a dangerous hobby, but it wasn't like the Wright brothers are. It's, it's very similar to like with that Edison light bulb, where it's like everyone kind of knew the electric light bulb was coming. It was who would do it first. Everyone right. knew flight was coming. Man flight was right. going to happen. It wasn't right. like the Wright brothers invented the concept. They were right. kind of just yeah. the first to do so successfully and commercially making it commercially viable and correct with, there's all kinds of patent issues and those, those things but yeah so i guess uh even if the guys i'm gonna be talking about may be less interesting why don't you just give us the rundown of orville and wilbur wright all right so they were born uh wilbur was born in indiana in 1867 and orville was born in ohio in 1871 they did actually call each other will and orv just like we see in the movie, that is that is a real thing. Yeah, see, great, great film, N- nailed it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the thing. Like, I can't I can't dog on this film for its historical accuracy because it's it's actually pretty good from that standpoint. Right. Their father was a preacher, um, just like we see in the movie. He was traveling around for a lot of their childhood, but was still as active in their uh, upbringing as he could be. He would send them letters and um, toys and stuff. Their mother grew up with a father who ran a carriage shop, so she had a fascination with machinery, very similar to kind of how Tesla talks about his mom, where she would build little gadgets and machines to use around the house and would make toys, like little mechanical toys Mm. for her kids. And so the brothers both grew up with this kind of fascination with machinery and grew up learning to kind of take things apart and learn how things work and, you know, build their own toys and stuff. Neither of the brothers finished high school. And that's actually interesting considering that they specifically bring that up in the movie. There's a scene at the beginning where Wilbur says, I'm 30 years old. And the only thing that I've accomplished is graduating from high school. And that's, uh, that's false. (laughs) Which he actually didn't do. And that couldn't have even been a reference to his posthumous diploma because it wasn't awarded until 1994. And the movie came out in 1978. (laughs) That's funny. So it's not even like a cutesy little callback thing, right? Um, it's just wrong. It's just a lie. <laughs> that, but that's that's one of the that's one of the bigger like I guess historical inaccuracies that the movie has. Okay. So neither neither one of them actually actually finished high school. As children, Wilbur was the more confident and outgoing one, and Orville was a little more shy. But Wilbur's personality changed after a hockey injury in 1885. He was hit in the face with a stick. It's not known whether it was on purpose or by accident. However, the kid that hit him in the face with the stick actually later went on to be a serial killer. What? Yeah. <laughs> what the heck? There, there's your movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wait, it's Jason Voorhees? <laughs> the guy uh, the guy who hit him in the face is Oliver Crook Haw. Okay. And he... Yeah, we don't have to go into it because it's not, they don't mention the movie or anything. Well, I'm just thinking, like, is is this explained the poor performance in the film is he just got hit with the head. And, like, he's such such a good actor that he just perfectly imitated. That could have been a choice. Yeah. But they just don't say anything about it. He's just acting super weird. Right, right. He's just acting like he has brain damage. (laughs) Yes. He's just acting super weird like he had like he got hit in the head with a hockey stick as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> but they don't actually explain that that's why he acts like that. Uh, I need to pull up clips, clips of this guy in Law and Order and see if he's just a bad actor or if that was just a weird choice. I don't know. 
I don't know. At some point, actors have bosses, though. And, like, you, you tell, hey, hey, dude, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Anyway. It, you know, at least it was consistent. Maybe maybe the director was like, hey, man, I love this. Like, I love this. This is so good. This is exactly what... Maybe they had some historical advisor who was telling the director, like, oh, yeah, this is probably, from accounts that we have, this is how Wilbur would have acted. Like, right. this, is, this is so good. Wilbur was so boring. <laughs> but I, I feel like even if that is true, just abandon that. Just <laughs> right. say, all right, you know what? Like, we just can't, we can't do this then. Like, we're just not going to be historically accurate to that point. Right, you're, you already lied about the high school thing. Maybe just lie and say, oh, uh, yeah, Wilbur was mildly interesting. Oh, bold choice. <laughs> <laughs> Not even that far. Wilbur acted like a normal human man. <laughs> right. and, that, and just just right there would be a massive improvement. Historians up in arms. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so after he get hit, after he got hit in the face, he did like he lost a bunch of teeth. Um he had a bunch of complications from the injury like digestive issues. He had, like fell into severe bouts of depression afterwards. Oh wow. And so he planned on going to college but didn't after that injury and all the issues associated with it and instead just kind of looked after his mother for the next few years um and she actually died in 1889. So that's why oh. we don't see her in the movie at all. See, but address that. That's personal life drama that, like, right. you could make more interesting characters out of. And, yeah. Like, we're dedicating this flight to our mom and all that kind of stuff. Right. Instead, they, like, they try to shoehorn in the, like, shitty love interest characters. Was that was that a real person? I don't think either one of them was real. That's so bizarre, too, then. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's like, I could kind of understand that maybe if, like, those two women like later go on to become their wives or something right but they don't neither one of them ever gets married oh that's weird yeah why why include it at all they're lifelong bachelors so why put it in there and ignoring the mom's death it's similar to it's like you notice how it, and we'll we'll get to langley but you notice how all of a sudden it's like oh they just kind of stopped showing langley yeah because he died too like when he just yeah. stopped showing up the movie it's because he died like you can at least mention it yeah I, anyway i don't know it's so strange. So around this time, the two boys started to participate in cycling, a new hobby that was becoming very popular in America, like we uh, mentioned in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And You know what song would work way better in this movie than <laughs> in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? Opportunity wasted. Right. It would make this movie better. That, that, that song would actively make this movie better. <laughs> you could play it you could play it after the after the 1908 plane crash where they accidentally have the first uh plane crash death <laughs> and then raindrops keep falling on my head <laughs> while Orville's laid up in the in the hospital bed with his broken leg <laughs> or just watch that song or watch that watch the music video for that song on a loop instead of watching this movie <laughs> yeah so so they get really into cycling, and they kind of realize that they can make money off of it because they get so interested in it that they start fixing their own bikes, and then all their friends know, oh, those the Wright brothers, they're so mechanically inclined, we can take our bikes to them if they get broken or we want, you know, want some improvements or something, we can take it to them and they'll they'll fix them up. And so they start their bicycle shop because it's like a, a passion of theirs that they 
that they can make money off of. And so while running the bicycle shop at the same time, like you mentioned, they become fascinated in the advancements being made around the world in the field of aeronautical engineering. And because they're so mechanically inclined, they start reading about and studying and building their, you know, some kites, flying machines, and they, this is like, that's how they get started on on their path. It is kind of interesting that none of the things that they had, or none of the things that they, that they, you know, had in their right flyer, they didn't really invent any of those things. They were just the first ones to kind of put them all together and make them work hmm. together. Okay. So like they they weren't necessarily the first people to use control surfaces to like steer a glider, but they were the first ones to make a mechanism that would be scalable to a bigger plane. So like you mentioned the uh, German engineer Otto Lilienthal. Mm-hmm. So he would he would have his gliders that he would he could steer them. He could have some form of control. But it was because he would just move his body from one side to the other and change like the center of gravity of his glider and it would make it turn. But if you're making a big plane with an engine on it, that doesn't scale. Right. Right. You can't you can't do that. It it doesn't uh, it doesn't scale to a to a larger craft. So they were the first one. You know, they had the twisting wings. They added a rudder and then eventually they, they added engines. Otto Lilienthal was actually one of their big inspirations, the uh, German aviation pioneer. And they mentioned him in the film a few times. And most notably, after Wilbur stalls one of their gliders at Kitty Hawk and crashes, basically the nose gets too, the uh, pitches up too high. He right. loses all of his airspeed and, and falls to the ground. And when he gets up, he says, just like Lilienthal died, which is accurate. Oh, Otto right. Lilienthal did die in a glider crash in 1896 just that way he's pulled up too pitched up too fast stalled out and uh broke his spine in the crash and died a couple of days later and that crash also led to them being so set on having like absolute control over their flyer they wanted to do all of the testing and measurements and unmanned tests and models they wanted to make sure that their aircraft was going to be as safe as they could get it which is weird cuz some, some of those early flights you see in the film I'm like What's to stop them just like going out into the ocean? Like I, they seem way more trusting to their initial things, but so maybe in, in real life they're more cautious than the film makes it appear. A hundred percent, yeah. Okay. So they okay. they they were. I mean, they knew it was that it was still dangerous, right? But they did everything they could to try and mitigate as much of the danger as possible. Gotcha. The film makes it look like it's like, let's try this. Whoops. <laughs> right. So like one thing that they don't show in the film, which I think would actually go a long way to show how careful and how how smart and how much forethought they had. They actually were one of the first people to build their own wind tunnel to test uh, like scale mm. model designs and test different okay, wing yeah. shapes and angles of attack. And they actually... Because they had uh, this like table of measurements that they were using in their designs, and the table came from Otto Lilienthal, and they were realizing that their experimental data wasn't coinciding with what they had in their measurement charts, like what their what the equations say that your certain so the lift. Ma- and, the, the math seemed off, yeah, right. And so they built their own wind tunnel and built their own machines to measure all the different forces on their on the wing shapes that they would design. And discovered that Lilienthal was wrong in his calculations, and then oh, huh. 
used those calculations in their designs to improve them and make them more stable, make them safer. And apparently the measurements that they were using were only barely off from the modern measurements that they use today when they're actually building airplanes. Nice. As far as like, uh, you know, how different angles and uh, wing shapes are affected by the air. and Yeah. So they were actually, for the time, hyper-accurate measurements. Okay. But we don't see any of that movie. We don't see any wind tunnel testing. Because, again, that is that is probably, even for this movie, a step too far. <laughs> like, it's one thing to show, like... They didn't want it to be boring. <laughs> right. It's one thing to have a boring scene of a guy flying on a kite in, on a beach. It's another thing to just have two guys just standing, just staring at a wind tunnel, <laughs> writing down measurements you know, over and over again, like 200 times for all their wing designs. So even for this movie, that would have been too much. <laughs> so they they did, just like uh, in the movie, they did build kites to test their original glider designs. And they chose Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, to test in because of its winds. It had decently high, you know, wind speeds pretty much every day. It had high dunes that they could use for launch so like for elevation and then like to ramp down like we see with their their little track that they make right and then also because it's got soft sand you decrease your risk of death if you fall yeah right just in case they they were making crash landings which they did um so it kind of checked all the boxes for them did was it like they say in the film where the place was suggested to them by the weather service like they were asking around and yeah okay okay that is also that is also real so they did um they did ask yeah, the weather service. I don't. I don't know if it's the weather, the National Weather Service. I don't know if that existed, but basically, what whatever the precursor organization was, right. some government agency that monitored weather suggested this location. Yeah, correct. Yeah, so they made their first manned glider flight in 1901, and they made numerous flights after, but they still lacked the control they needed. They continued to improve their designs, and then once they felt comfortable flying under power, they teamed up with their shop mechanic, Charles Taylor, who built them their first engine, which I also thought was interesting that we don't see him in the movie at all. No, right. It's like it doesn't even exist. And he built the first airplane engine. Right. The movie makes you think that they just bought them somewhere. They just bought an engine, but he's actually making it on site. Or And they, yeah, and they actually, they thought about it. They thought about using just a regular automobile engine, but they were too big. Right. They were too heavy. So they actually had to custom make their own engine. They had to cast the parts out of aluminum and build a completely brand new engine basically from scratch to power their their first Wright Flyer. Um, and uh, most of that work was done by Charles Taylor. Hmm. And yeah, he's not, they don't, they don't even give him like a passing mention like, oh, this engine that, that old Chucky Taylor built us sure is doing good. It's like, they don't not even, even that, right. not even a nod. Another thing that's actually one of the things that they they didn't invent, but they kind of, the way that they implemented the propellers on their right flyer is kind of not necessarily counterintuitive, but could have been an easy thing to overlook, but they didn't even in the design stage. So when you power a propeller and it spins around, all the force that spins the propeller one way is also acting on the aircraft and trying to spin it the opposite way. Oh, I never thought about that. Because, right, in theory, if you held one propeller, the whole plane could turn just as fast. Right. So that's why helicopters have tail rotors, or they have two rotors that spin in opposite directions. 
so that the whole helicopter doesn't just spin. It's a stabilizing thing, yeah. Right. So with their propellers, they correctly pointed out that if they only used one propeller, because their plane was so light, that it would be wildly unstable and would just crash over. But if you put two propellers that spin in opposite directions, they'll balance each other out. And since they're being powered by the same engine, you know they're turning at the same rate. Huh. And so it keeps it level and stable in flight. Interesting. Now, there are planes like later on that have, you know, just one propeller, but... But it's because they're heavier? The propeller is so much smaller, and it's because they're heavier. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So they made their first powered flight on December 17th, 1903. In 1904 and 1905, they improve on their design, and they build the Wright Flyer 2 and the Wright Flyer 3, both of which could stay in the air for well over 30 minutes. One of their biggest issues when they were trying to get people to invest in their work and get the army to invest in their work was just proving that what they were saying they could do was even possible. Which they do show that in the film, too. They basically are like, yeah, we don't buy it. Like, we did it. Yeah, Yeah. probably not. Right. People just straight up didn't believe them. Right. So they went kind of on tour and they would, you know, go, they went all around the U.S. They went around Europe with their flying machines to kind of demonstrate to everyone like this is actually possible. We can do what we say we're doing. And early on, they're trying to be a little more, and again, at least this is in the film, they're trying to be a little more secretive because it's all, you're very worried about patents. And yes. we got to make sure we are 100% good to go before we unveil it so people can't take our ideas and then beat us to it, potentially. Yes. And that is actually, that is actually something that happened in real life, too. So further advancements and innovations past the Wright Flyer 2 and Wright Flyer 3 hampered by Wilbur's legal battles over intellectual property rights. So basically, mm-hmm. around, you know, after the Wright Flyer 3 in 1905, basically from then until the time of Wilbur's death, spoiler alert, in 1912, he gets so tangled up in all the legal issues that he is basically done inventing then. Mm, right. Which is kind of a shame, but also at the same time, it's like, I don't know that I could fault him for that because he that's his life's work and... There's a lot of money to be made, especially when you're the only person that can build an airplane (laughs) and you're trying to get the government contract to build the airplane. And all of a sudden there's people trying to take your designs or people that you think are trying to take your designs to get government money to build airplanes. I mean, it, it makes all the sense in the world to to fight that if if you can. Oh, absolutely. And again, it's, it's all ties into the same stuff we saw with Thomas Edison and Tesla and, and all that stuff. Like these, yeah. these, patents, these patent wars have kind of been around forever. I have one question real quick that the movie never really addressed, and I couldn't really find this. So what were they chasing? What was the criteria to be considered we have now flown in a way that's different than glide like what what was the criteria was there a certain like this distance this duration this height are you talking about like prior to their first flight yeah like yeah like what accomplishment are they actually because we the people have been gliding for decades so what accomplishment are they actually trying to hit that's going to be special in the fact that we're still talking about them and not these other people yeah so basically it was uh so people had actually been flying for a long time like exactly they had hot air balloons i think the first the first hot air balloon flight was in 1783. So that was the first time that somebody actually got in a craft that took off of the ground. Right. And and kind of flew around. 1783, not 1883, 1783. Right. Yeah. So this 
revolution was all about heavier than air. So they they talk about in the film, these crafts are heavier than air. So like a hot air balloon, if you don't do anything to it, it will just float away by itself. Right. An airplane, if you don't turn it on, it will just sit on the ground because it's heavier than air. Right. Okay. So it had to be heavier than air. It had to be powered. Which has to do with duration. So it can't just be like you're gliding and then you just stop when your momentum comes out. You have to be able to then continue your propulsion. Okay. That kind of makes sense. Yeah. Was there actually a list of criteria? There was a thing. It was like five. It was like five criteria. And they were the first to check all the boxes, basically? Yes. And it was like, and they didn't have any. They didn't invent any one thing of this criteria. They weren't the first people to do any of one thing, but they were the first ones to put it all together. Okay, so it had to be heavier than air, powered, so by a motor, steerable. Which they talk about in the film, but being able to turn. If you can't turn, you can't fly. That's like the one criteria they do mention in the film. Carry a pilot, so it had to be manned. So like that's the aerodrome that uh, Langley had. It was heavier than air, powered, and sustained flight. But nobody was riding it. Right, okay. So, yeah, those are the five things. Heavier than air, powered, steerable, carry a pilot, and sustain flight. Okay. So not just like, oh, I can barely crest over this hill and then immediately crash. Gotcha. That doesn't count. Right. Okay. That makes sense. I just, the film didn't spell that out. So, they, yeah, they were the first ones to do all five. Okay. Also, during that time, while Wilbur was going through his legal battles, they did have that 1908 plane crash that we see in the film that kind of banged up Orville and killed the... The army lieutenant. He killed the other guy, yeah. Who he is, he was the first, um, actually. Oh, is he the first airplane death? Because everything else before that was gliders. He was the first fatality in a powered aircraft. Army lieutenant Thomas Selfridge. Huh. Um, And actually, they don't, he's just kind of a guy that we see sitting next to Orville in the movie. But in real life, he actually did, was doing his own experiments with Alexander Graham Bell. Hmm. And was gaining a bunch of technical knowledge and, according to the Air Force Historical Support Division, at the time, knew more about airplanes than anyone else in the Army. Oh, wow. Okay. And then he died. So he dies in this, uh, in the in that plane crash. It's kind of like a big, a big deal for military aviation. So because of the ongoing legal battles and all the stress associated with that, Wilbur was not in a good way. And I'm sure that some of that probably contributed to a weakened immune system that led to him dying of typhoid fever in 1912. Orville left the Wright Company just three years later in 1915, but he continued to work as an advisor for government and private aviation firms all the way through the First and Second World Wars. He also had a feud with the Smithsonian Institution Mm -hmm. because it was claiming that S.P. Langley, who was a former secretary of the Smithsonian Institution, and not the Wright brothers, actually made the first powered flight. And it also kind of gets into Curtis because the reason that they said that, or the, the reasoning that they gave was that they hired Curtis to see if the aerodrome could have actually flown with the person in it. And he said, yep, I did it. I did the experiment. I took the design of the aerodrome and I, and I flew a person in it. So S.P. Langley probably was the first person to design an aircraft. But it turned out that he actually made a bunch of improvements and modifications before the test. Right. That the Smithsonian didn't publish and didn't say anything about. And this incensed Orville to no end. Uh, <laughs> he actually 
because of that, refused to have the Wright Flyer be displayed at the Smithsonian, and instead donated the Wright Flyer to the London Science Museum and demanded an apology from the Smithsonian. They actually retracted their statement and set, you know credited the Wright brothers with the first uh, manned-powered flight. In the late 20s, though, right? In like 1928. Was... Yeah. They didn't apologize, though, until 1942. Huh. And so basically... Even after the retraction, they said, hey, like, we took it and, you know, we, we, we took that down. We, we credited you, you know, can we have the right flyer for our museum? And Orville said, no, not until you apologize. And they didn't do it until 1942. And so up until, well, it was even past 1942. But up, in, up until that time, the right flyer was still in London. Huh. In 1942, the Smithsonian finally recanted and they started making a deal to get the flyer back to the States, but because it was World War II at the time, right. the flyer was in protective storage, so they weren't going to get it out and sh- move it around and ship it. Right, risky getting blown up, yeah, yeah. Right, because they didn't want it to get blown up, this like priceless historical artifact. And so uh, Orville actually never saw it again after it went to London because it, it didn't come back to the States until after he died. And it was his estate that agreed to let the Smithsonian purchase the flyer for $1, but they made the Smithsonian sign a legal agreement, part of which states, and this is a quote, neither the Smithsonian Institution or its successors, nor any museum or other agency, bureau, or facilities administered for the United States of America by the Smithsonian Institution or its successors shall uh, uh, punish, (laughs) shall publish or permit to be displayed a statement or label in connection with or in respect of any aircraft model or design of earlier date than the 1903 Wright aeroplane, claiming in effect that such aircraft was capable of carrying a man under its own power in controlled flight. Right, basically like, we'll give it to you if you say, for perpetuity, we are first. Right, and that's despite any other evidence that may or may not come out in the future... Right, the Smithsonian is not allowed. If something were to come out, then they can't say it. If they do say it, they the uh, whoever is the right like, descendant yeah. of the of the Wright brothers can just take it back, can just take it away. And this actually right. has led some people to criticize the Smithsonian and say that it hamstrings them from investigating claims about earlier flights or ones in other countries because there are other claims, right? Right, there are other claims. Um, even in the United States, uh, there's a a guy named Gustav Whitehead who claimed to have flown under you know a, a craft, a powered craft in 1901, two years before mm. the Wright brothers. The thing with that though is that the design people have like engineers have looked at the design and said, I don't know, this design doesn't look very stable. It doesn't look like it's capable, probably, of flying. And also, there's no photographic evidence of that craft ever flying. Hmm. They know that it got built because there's photographs of it on the ground, but there's no photo like with the Wright brothers, you know, they have there is the picture of the first flight and it's very clearly a person in the craft and it's off the ground. Right. Nothing like that exists for Gustav Whitehead. There's it's like one article was written at the time and, you know, a couple of supposed eyewitnesses. So maybe it's true. Maybe it isn't. But the Smithsonian isn't going to look into it too hard because they legally can't say anything if they want to keep the right flyer hanging in the in their museum. Right. And I don't think either of us did a, a deep dive on any of these. But there there is a Wikipedia page called Claims to the First Powered Flight. And it lists seven parties that all make, can make a claim. The Wright Brothers, of course, 
Whitehead that you mentioned, and then there's uh, Langley's Aerodrome, which is the Curtis controversy you were talking about, and then there's yeah. still another four others. You know, because uh, I remember this when the Brazil hosted the Olympics, part of their opening ceremony was playing up their claim to be first in flight from this uh, Alberto Santos Dumont guy. But then there's also uh, a German person, uh, a New Zealand guy, a uh, French guy. So there's there's multiple other claims that said they did it, but the Wright brothers get the credit. And I almost wonder, because of the Smithsonian's influence and that deal, does that actually... I, I honestly don't know. Like, in your opinion, I guess, were the Wright brothers first? Or it's possible they were first and we can't really know for sure. And the Smithsonian is not helping the cause because they can't actually help us investigate. I think it's possible that they weren't the first, but I think it's probable that they were. Okay. And even even if they weren't, there's no smoking gun evidence of some... It's not like there's a video from 1902 of somebody else flying. Like, it's... It very well may have been the case. There's no massive cover-up to keep, to keep them being as first. Yeah. Right. It's just by nature of how things were documented at the time, you know, unfortunately, the eyewitness account from 1901 isn't good enough. Right, right. Of course, it's funny on the Brazilian guy, too, it says his flight was 1906. I was like, okay, dude, well, so what's your claim then to be first if the rights were yeah. documented or before that? Yeah. Uh, but like the one, this one, uh, this French guy is uh, 1897. Right. So I, yeah. I wonder if some of these things are just the criteria and stuff. Anyway, uh, it is interesting. Yeah. Um, and then just the last thing that I have about the Wright Flyer is that if you do, it is still around. Um, it is in the Smithsonian. And if you want to see it, you can go to the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. It is probably my favorite museum that I've ever been to. Oh, really? Okay. And I, yeah. I, and I, have, I have been there. I, and the Wright Flyer, I remember thinking it was uh, bigger than I, than I expected. But you kind of see that in the film. I, I, I think <clears> I was <throat> expecting something smaller. And it's, uh, it's pretty big. Yeah, it's like four, it's 40 feet long, like from... Or from wingtip to wingtip, or over 40 feet. Right. And there was, uh, oh, I forget exactly how it worked, but uh, that when Neil Armstrong went to the moon, he had like a piece of the right flyer, like some cloth from a wing or something in in his suits. Like that yes. part actually went, so it went to the moon. Yeah. And that's actually cool too, because both Neil Armstrong and the Wright brothers are from Ohio. And that's actually another, you talked about like controversy over first in flight. There's like a, like a state rivalry between Ohio and North Carolina over who gets to claim first in flight or like right right North Carolina says that they're first in flight but Ohio calls a place calls itself the birthplace of aviation because that's where they're actually from and that's where they did all of their designs and also like Neil Armstrong is from there mm. so it's I don't know it is I personally I think that Ohio probably has the better claim even though the first flight took place in North Carolina it's just because it was sandy and windy there. It had nothing to do with anybody from there. Right, right. They, the the peop, the Wright Brothers themselves had no ties to North Carolina. That's just the place they chose to do it. And right, yeah. without North without North Carolina, the Wright Brothers just find another place. Without Ohio, you don't have the Wright Brothers. So there's a big difference exactly. there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, their main rival in the film well at least the first phase of the film their main competitor they're to, to racing the flight is this uh samuel langley uh guy which in the film they kind of show him as this elder or this, this more experienced more formally trained scientist with government backing and that's right. 
pretty accurate. I, again, I couldn't find anything about him, his disdain, or his. Uh, the, the film kind of paints it like, <laughs> there's no way a couple bicycle salesmen will beat me. Like, I couldn't get anything on that vibe. I think that was maybe more of a, a modern take, because, like, back, I don't know, formal education mattered less the farther back you go. Like, a lot of these people are kind of just self educated when you look back. Of course, I guess we said today because, like, you know, Bill Gates doesn't have a college degree and stuff like that, right? But yeah, Langley was a lifelong scholar and scientist. Uh, his main area actually seems to have been astronomy. Uh, he worked with a lot of observatories out east, and he actually, and this is kind of fun, I'll probably can do some of this as a side note here, maybe. So Langley's tied to the history of time zones in the United States. Okay. So he did. it wasn't his idea or anything, but when... As, as you know, with the, we talked about, you know, time zones come about because of railroad schedules and you need to kind of get all of these things on the same page. When they kind of finally then agreed, okay, we're going to make the Allegheny Observatory in Pittsburgh, the time there is the railroad time for like the whole northeast part of the United States. Langley was in charge of the Allegheny Observatory when that decision was made. And so he was the one kind of in charge of make, just kind of implementing all that. So, like, it wasn't his idea, huh, but he okay. was in charge when that went into place. Yeah. And then that's the one that kind of then is seen as the beginning of what we, our system we have today. Again, there were various systems in various places. And, you know, like New York might have gone their own separate thing. But the one that kind of evolved into our current system started with Langley in. Allegheny uh, Observatory in in Pittsburgh, and yeah, I think I will side note. I can talk about. I think we've talked before about time zones, and I'm very passionate about how daylight savings <laughs> and standard time and, and time zones and all these things should operate. And I, I we will uh we'll do that maybe one of our side notes here on uh, on Patreon later. But no, Langley, uh, he studied the sun. Uh, he made some of the first sketches of sunspots uh, that were kind of you know disseminated in textbooks throughout the world. He invented something called the bolometer or bolometer. <laughs> bolometer sounds cooler. <laughs> uh, which was used by another scientist in the late 1800s to track the, the greenhouse effect for the first time. Because it, it had something to do with... I, I, I don't even understand. But <laughs> they were was tracking greenhouse stuff at the time with this invention of Langley's. Huh. In 1887... So yeah, 15 years before the right flight, 16 years before the right flight, he began fooling around with gliders himself. Obviously, he fails in the film, um, but his unmanned gliders were very successful. He had one that flew 1,000 meters in 1896. But again, it just didn't meet all of your, your criteria. He also did build, I don't know how compared to the rights, but he did build some rudimentary wind tunnels as well. It sounds like you kind of just set up something like like a giant rotating arm that could kind of go around and, you know, simulate uh, wind tunnel effects. Okay. So, yeah, in 1898, then, it's no surprise that the U.S. War Department gives him a big grant to work on manned flight. And then that's the project we kind of see in the film, why he has this government backing. They were basically to put government money up front, as opposed to, like, the rights are trying to, like, invent it first and then get the government money Langley was uh, had enough of a reputation. He gets the money first, and then the government is then basically hiring him or giving him a grant to go and uh, see if he can develop this manned flight. Uh, obviously, the War Department has a very big interest in that because the possibilities are huge to have uh, aviation as a, a part of war efforts. But again, not, I didn't see anything about any animosity that Langley had towards the rights. And actually, it sounds like 
Langley tried to reach out to the rights and I don't know if share I don't know what exactly but just just meet with them and they were basically like no nah, we're good like they just didn't respond to his request to to meet so Leia Langley had been in charge of the Smithsonian Institute since the 80s when we see him in the film yeah at the end of the day his his designs just didn't scale up like he was hoping to and yeah he did crash uh, a manned version in the Potomac which they mentioned in the film and they don't mention, oh, of course, so I think this is less exciting than the sound. So his launch, launching mechanism was a, a catapult, but that, it wasn't like, to me, it sounds more like a slingshot. So I think catapult, I think like you're flinging something like overhand kind of thing. Yeah. I think it's more like, we kind of see with a little bit of the rights, where it's almost like they rubber bands, so like, almost like they pull back, makes me think of a slingshot, but I think they were calling that a catapult. It was like a, like a catapult on an aircraft carrier. Is that, yeah, so why are those called catapults and not slingshots, I guess, then? <laughs> Oh, I don't know. I just know that that's what they're called. Okay, okay. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> right. I think catapult, I think like you're pulled back and then you release and it flings forward, which I guess is the same thing, but it's like, I don't know, the planes that you're operating in are different than what I was saying. You know, slingshot is two-dimensional, catapult is three-dimensional. Anyway. Yeah, could you could you use a slingshot to catapult an object? Like catapult, the verb just means like to launch yeah, you're right. There, there. I don't know. There's some semantic things here that I'm just not real sure on. Right, right. But yeah. So um, after the failed attempts, uh, or three years after these failed attempts in 1903, Langley dies. He just uh, had some uh, a couple of strokes uh, brought on by probably. I mean, I would argue brought on by stress, not just of the failures. There was also, I guess, some guy embezzling funds from the Smithsonian. And after it was discovered, Langley kind of then said, like, I'm just going to refuse my salary because, like, I maybe I should have known this was happening, so you, please stop paying me. Hmm. Yeah, then he has a couple of strokes and dies at, dies at 71 years old. But, yeah, we never see any of that in the film. He just kind of stopped mentioning him. And they transition then to the antagonist of Glenn Curtis. And he's actually a pretty interesting guy. Like, I might put him on that list of nominees for most interesting people in American history is, is Glenn Curtis here. I was going to say the same thing just yeah. after giving him a cursory overview. Okay. Also, I, I don't want to I don't want to derail anything here, but yeah, whoever was casting this movie did a great job with him. Yes. Because Scott Highlands, the actor that plays him, looks just like him. Okay, yeah. And I, my, I even have a note that, like, Curtis's picture on Wikipedia makes him definitely look like the sleazeball we see in the film. Yeah, like he just yeah. he just definitely looks like that snake oil salesman from uh, 100, 120 years ago. Straight out of all the stereotypes you might you might think of. The actor that plays him, did you see that? Because he looked kind of familiar. I guess after well, not when I was watching it, but just now when I was like clicking through, he's in Titanic. Oh, for real? And in Titanic, he's John Jacob Astor the Fourth. The guy that we talked about in, um, what movie did we talk about him in? Oh, uh, in The Prestige. The guy that funded Tesla's uh, mountain. Oh. His mountain laboratory. He was like yeah. the richest man in the world at the time. He was the richest man on the Titanic and he died. Yeah, the Astoria and all that, right? Yeah. Yeah, so like that background character in the Titanic, the 1996 Titanic, is played by the guy who's... The same who's... actor played him in the plays Curtis here? Yeah, yeah. That's funny. Anyways, fun little connection. Yeah. So yeah, the film definitely makes him more of like a opportunist, which he was, but he also was very important and innovative in his own right. And I think maybe the film downplays that side of it because they're just trying to make him like, he's just there to steal whatever these other people have done. And yeah, sure, he's good at motorcycle engines or whatever, but that's about it. It's like, no, he he, he was very talented in his uh, in his own right. 
So he was born in 1878. So he's kind of, we've talked about many times before, right place, right time. Glenn Curtis is the right place, right time for bicycles and motorcycles and airplanes. Yeah, he's basically in his teens when bicycles become popular. So he becomes a bicycle racer and he's really into bicycles. And then you get these internal combustion engines at the same time. And he's like, oh, sweet, let's start slapping these engines onto bicycles and motorcycles are invented. It's like, he's not that he invented them, but like, it's all happening kind of right at the same time that motorcycles just, you know, there's bicycles with engines on them. They're motorcycles. <laughs> so yeah, so he had a very limited formal education, but he was very gifted with all this mechanical stuff. He even built his own camera at one point just to study photography. It's just crazy to think about back in like the 19th century. It's like, oh, I can go buy a Kodak camera. I could probably just build one though myself. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's just crazy to think about uh, that that was like a realistic choice you could make back then. He does brag in the film about setting a land speed record. That is accurate. In 1903, he hit uh, 64 miles per hour. Although four years later, 1907, he got up to 136 miles per hour on land, which is kind of crazy and dangerous. Yeah. I would not want to go 136 miles per hour in anything built in 1907. I think he says in the movie, they like, he makes a comment about how he like hit 125 and next time he's shooting for 130. So he got, but he didn't ah, get okay. up to 136. Well, so that makes sense. So, yeah, when, so when you see him in the film, I don't know if the film messed up the timeline or if I'm just getting the timeline mixed, mixed up in my memory. So, right. So if the Wrights flew in 1903 is, and then they meet him basically probably around 1907 as he's approaching this, this 136 mile hour record. Does that time out? Is, is in the film, does he show up after their first flight? Because then they're still trying to make improvements after that to get the government stuff. Yeah, because he shows up after their first okay. flight. And I think, but I think, and I forget how it happens in what order, but I think it's before the 1908 plane crash. Okay. Because then it's after that crash that him and Bell, like, remember they like talk their way yes. okay. through the guard. Which I thought that that was kind of an interesting scene too. This is getting a little bit off track, but that was bizarre. It seemed out of it seemed out of place. Yeah, where they walk up to the basically they they have this giant tent set up over the wreckage, and there's a guard outside, and Alexander Graham Bell and Glenn Curtis walk up, and they say, "We oh we need to look at we need to look at the wreckage," and it's it's Graham Bell is the one who's who's like the lead. And right. he says, well, I've, I've been authorized by the government. And the guard's like, I don't care who you are. And he says, I'm Alexander Graham Bell. And he's like, well, I can't let you in. And then Glenn Curtis is like, oh, but you know me, I'm Glenn Curtis. And the guard's like, oh, yeah, I know exactly. Right away, yes, come this way. <laughs> and it's like, you, don't, you know who Glenn Curtis is? You know who Alexander Graham Bell is? <laughs> I thought that was kind of strange. What, I yeah. thought that was like a weird, a weird choice. It was a weird choice. Like, I could definitely see Curtis being famous, but how do you not know Alexander Graham Bell? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right. Very well known. Although I, I guess I still wonder if it's possible, though. Like, I, I don't know. People just ran in different circles, I guess. Let's see. Yeah. So that same year, 1907, Bell does invite Curtis to work with him on aviation. Uh, them kind of teaming up makes sense. Again, the film just leaves out, though, of course, that Langley had died the year before in 1906. And yeah, Curtis did challenge Wright patents. Uh, he did win a flying contest. And actually, I might ask you on that. So, like, they, they, they in the film, they show that they have that whole race in New York with the in around the Statue of Liberty or whatever. Was that true? Did that happen? There's like oh, uh, the details on that. I didn't. I didn't see that, okay. but I also I also didn't look. So, okay, okay. They were doing those kinds of things, so like and like Curtis going over to Paris, winning contests. That was happening. So yes, just because the rights were first, it still quickly became the Wild West of 
okay, yes, the rights have this patent, but if we make it a little bit different, it's, it's all the Thomas Edison stuff. People, so people were very much trying to make small, just like Edison would make small tweaks and get a patent. Well, they're trying to make small tweaks and like, oh, this isn't what the Wright brothers invented. This is something completely different. Now we can get a patent. And like, so people all over were trying to like uh, take advantage and, and make, and like you mentioned, all the court battles that the Wrights were having to deal with. Um, and then eventually Curtis died of appendicitis in uh, 19, or sorry, not 1951, uh, when he was 51. And he's actually in the, in the midst of a court, another court battle with another former business partner. So I don't know. I feel, I feel like the Wikipedia page is fairly simple. He just is just kind of like an, 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 an inventor. Yes. He's fighting patents and yes, he's maybe a little bit of an antagonist for the Wright brothers and probably wasn't, it was probably taking credit for things he shouldn't have, but then also was making his own innovations. He was adding to Langley's machine to make it flyable. Like all those things did happen. He was an accomplished pilot in and of himself in this early age. Um, so ultimately, yeah, when like, when the airport that is now LaGuardia opened in 1929, it was called Glenn H. Curtis Airport. Like he was that hmm. big of a deal at the time. Yeah. And uh, there's a museum in Hammondsport, New York, which we see Hammondsport multiple times in, in the film. There is a Glenn Curtis Museum there dedicated to his life and work. So the film does kind of paint him as like, ah, he didn't have any right to this stuff. But it's, it's almost like what we talk about with Edison. Yeah, Edison also did some shady stuff that maybe weren't completely his. So that's, Glenn Curtis was kind of that way too. So he did his own stuff. He kind of made stole some stuff. But so did all these guys at this back in this, at this day, it seems like. Yeah. Yeah. Two little minor things. Did you see that he was issued the first pilot's license in America? Oh, uh. He was issued pilot license number one from the Aero Club of America. And they actually issued, a. it was a batch of like several, but he got number one because he was C, Curtis. So he was the first one alphabetically. And Wilbur Wright huh. was also issued a license in the same batch, but because his name starts with W, he was given license number five. <laughs> That's funny. And then also, and this is not uh, connected to Curtis other than that it has his name, but the Curtis Wright company that is it basically, it was like a merger between Curtis and Wright and I think a few other companies, and this was years after his death, they designed and built what is my favorite airplane of all time, which is the P-40 Warhawk. It's like a fighter plane from World War II, but that's uh -huh. a, it's the Curtis, the Curtis P-40 and the Curtis in the name okay. is is Glenn Curtis. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, kind of the most, I mean, the Wright brothers are pretty famous, but I feel like the most famous person we see in the film is Alexander Graham Bell, which outside of being known for inventing the telephone, he's, I wasn't super, I mean, I wasn't really real well versed in it. Like the fact that he's not American, I used that, that never occurred to me. And Alexander Graham Bell is not American. Like what? He's not? No. I didn't know that. <laughs> right. <laughs> I just always assumed. Right. And it's like, okay, so he's born in Scotland, which again, a lot of these you know, people back then were born there. But it's like, when he moved over here, he didn't move, he moved to Canada. Like, he moved, they moved from Scotland to Canada. And then, yes, he started working in some, like, schools. And so, yes, he invents the telephone in the United States. But he's basically Scottish-Canadian. <laughs> he's, he's definitely working in the United States. But it's, I don't know, it's almost like all these actors that are from Canada. It's like, oh, yeah, they're actually Canadian. It's like, yeah, Alexander Graham Bell is actually Scottish and Canadian and just kind of worked in the United States. Anyway, so yeah, born in Scotland, 18, 1847. He didn't have his famous middle name until he was like 11. He just didn't have a middle name. And I guess like his dad is like a president. It's like, fine, well, you, you are now Alexander Graham Bell. 
But uh, <laughs> another one of these people who's just really good at inventions from a young age, his first credited invention was when he was 12. He invented some kind of like rotating brush sweeper thing to like dehusk stuff at a flour mill or something. And apparently that flour mill kept using this thing that this 12-year-old Alexander Graham Bell had invented for years after. I don't, I don't know if it just caught on wide beyond that particular flour, flour mill, but he huh. was like coming up with solutions to problems like that even as a kid. We mentioned him in conjunction with deaf people in ASL. Actually, I might have been on the Patreon. I don't know if we talked about it too much on the actual There Will Be Blood episode. But uh, he did have a vested interest in like sound and communication. His dad and grandfather dealt with like language systems and stuff and like phonics and all that kind of stuff. And then his mother was deaf. And then Bell himself later married uh, a deaf woman. So it all kind of makes what we were talking about with him being that advocate for oralism and that deaf people shouldn't actually use sign language they should learn to talk it makes it kind of weird when it's like it wasn't like he was an outsider like his loved ones were deaf and so it's almost like he thought he was doing what was in their best interest huh and uh i guess i'll talk about it now i kind of had it at the end but like it's just crazy how these people thought back then so like he's like we well, can't have deaf people together because then they're and just talking sign language to each other because then like you're gonna end up with a whole separate subculture and sub society of deaf people because they'll meet and then fall in love and make more deaf people. And then you just have a whole bunch of deaf people speaking this other language. And it's like chaos. Like, what are you talking about? But like, <laughs> that was like an actual concern. And of course, he was one of the supporters of eugenics as it becomes popular back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Man. And boy, it that sure was popular back then, huh? <laughs> it is kind of crazy how many, how many people like we come across and it's like oh yeah and by the way big time lover of eugenics <laughs> <laughs> and i guess again i'm not defending it but i'm just i'm just trying i'm trying i'm trying to rationalize or, or not rationalize i'm trying to work my way through their thought process and so if you are you think about you again it's all kind of stems from you know this is a, this is a side note here <laughs> stems from darwinism and the idea of okay traits are inherited and so, hey, if we want to be the, quote, best country, we want the smartest people. So therefore, if smart people are making more babies, we'll have a smarter population. That on its on the surface doesn't sound horrible. Right. <laughs> the problem is when you're the government's getting involved in the procreation of its citizens and then you're sterilizing undesirables. That's right. when you're crossing the line into, you know, basically, gen that's your slippery slope into genocide is when you, because you, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, oh, these, these traits are undesirable, so therefore, we're going to make sure you don't procreate, and, that, and yeah, that's, uh, that's all yeah. your eugenic stuff there that gets a little, but again, they, they were... Yeah, it was it was bad, <laughs> but I, I, at least I, I guess at least maybe draws a line on how they got there without being evil. I guess is maybe the way to say it. Right? Yeah. No. 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 I, yeah. Because yeah. because history is complicated, and so are people. <laughs> yes. Yes. Anyway, yeah. So the family moves uh, from Scotland to Canada, and it's actually kind of a health thing. So two of his brothers had died of disease, and they basically were moving to Canada just as a family because maybe it'll be healthier there i i forget the specifics but it was kind of a health related family move um yeah so from canada bell finds himself in new england working with the deaf 
meets his future wife when she's 15. Um, uh, he's 25, and I forget what year they got married. Man, he's just, he's like the historical figure bingo. It's like <laughs> super underage wife, loves eugenics, isn't, doesn't like sign language. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah yeah oh I, I think i got more coming so keep that bingo card oh out. okay all right cool <laughs> let's go for blackout <laughs> oh how, how about how about this didn't actually invent the telephone okay uh, okay so uh, another yeah another one where g- given credit for something they didn't actually do there it is there it is <laughs> yeah yep. okay is it at least like an edison thing like did did he at least take a design and then improve on it and then it just kind of got like mixed up to say that he invented it. It's more that it's more that. Yeah, it's, okay. it's more kind of and same with the rights having other competitions and they're kind of they like you said they didn't invent anything. They just kind of put it all together. It's kind of that. It's also kind of an Italian guy let his patent lapse and fought Bell in courts before finally dying and Bell ends up winning the patent thing and if that guy had actually not let his patent lapse that that guy actually would have got credit for inventing a telephone. Hey man, don't let your don't let your patents lapse. Yeah. You know? That's what happens. And then don't die during the court battle. You know, what are you, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. So, oh shoot. Did I write it down here? So like basically, uh, where did I write it down? Okay. Here it is. Yeah. So even the U S Congress in 2002 declared that the Italian guy had actually invented the telephone and would be credited if the, if, uh, he hadn't let his patents lapse, but then Canada, because Bell's their boy, he's Canadian, right? Scottish Canadian, Canadian parliament then immediately follows students like, no, no, U.S., you are wrong. It is uh, Alexander Graham Bell who deserves credit for the inventing the telephone, and we here so officially declare. What's the Italian guy's name? Well, the fact that Bell won. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't write it down. I just keep calling him Italian guy. Sorry, Italian guy. <laughs> so is, is so, it? Don't, don't let your patent slaps. The official position of history and film is that Alexander Graham Bell probably didn't, he, he didn't invent the telephone, uh, but also we can't be bothered to, to figure out the name of the guy who did. You know, you know what? It's just, I'm just using this. This is an example of how history works and is written by the winners. So his, history is uh, written by the winners. Uh, you can look that up. We can include it here. Uh, Antonio Meucci, I think is how you probably say that. Yeah, there you go. AKA Italian guy. So Isn't there just one Italian guy? I don't understand what your beef is here. <laughs> and he hang on. He is Oh, okay. I, I was gonna I was I was curious because you were talking about how like American Congress versus the Canadian Parliament. Oh yeah, yeah. And so I was like, well, why would the American Congress care that much? It, he immigrated to the US. Like he he was oh. a, he was born in Italy. He was Italian, but he wasn't he wasn't Italian. Like he didn't like live his whole life in Italy. He immigrated okay, to the yeah, U.S. Yeah, like yeah. he died in New York. Okay, so okay. so that that makes that makes sense now. So because of the financial success of his patents, <laughs> Bell was able to then just kind of very very do very much similar to what Edison did. Open his own lab and have lots of other inventions and things working out of that lab. Bell opens his own lab and there's lots of stuff going on there. So he's just kind of a financially successful inventor and scientist. Then obviously we see in the early 1900s how he then used that that influence and in, in funding to, you know, roll into a, uh, aviation. Uh, and then even after, you know, like in the 19 teens, he's working on boats and 
So he was just kind of uh, an inventor, but the root was kind of the deaf family members tied with his views there on trying to, quote, help the deaf community. Basically, my understanding, it, I, I didn't do a deep dive on the telephone itself. It doesn't really play into this movie, but it almost sounds like it, it has to do with uh, parallel messages being sent simultaneously across the same telegraph line. So we, we had telegraph signals we've talked about. Mm. If you could basically combine a bunch of signals on one line, that technology opened the door to transmitting voices over the same line is mm. the way oversimplified, under-researched uh, version to do it. But yeah. <laughs> okay. Another invention that uh, he made an attempt at uh, actually was, not inspired by is not the right word, but it's like when, when uh, President Garfield was shot, uh, I didn't realize this. So uh, even, even the guy who shot Garfield said, I didn't kill him. The doctors killed him. I just shot him. Okay. And so you can almost, like, and it sounds like you can almost argue Garfield wasn't assassinated. He was shot. And then the doctors right. made a, he, if, if it was, if it was, now obviously this is way later, but even then he should have been saved. If it was today, he, it would have been like an outpatient procedure. He's like on the streets in three days. Instead, he lingers on. He dies like 80 days after getting shot because oh, the doctors couldn't find the bullet. Oh, no. And this is also, they weren't quite on board with uh, what uh, Dr. Lister over in Europe was suggesting with, you know, washing your hands. So you have a bunch of doctors yeah. with their dirty fingers feeling around inside. trying. Where is that darn thing? Anyway, the reason uh, Alexander Graham Bell comes into it, he tried to then invent a metal detector. Like, ah, okay. While Garfield, Garfield is lingering... Dude lost like 80 pounds over the course of his 80 days, too. He was like, basically, like, the doctors killed him. Like, he basically died of, like, emaciation and infection and sepsis. The oh, bullet wow. didn't kill him. Yeah. The doctors killed him. Anyway, so because there has so, they have so much time here, as Garfield's hanging on to life, Bell's working on different versions of a metal detector. And, like, we're going to find that bullet with my metal detector. Ultimately, it's just kind of like 80 days is obviously not enough time, and, and it didn't actually quite work, but I just thought it was interesting that Bell was working on early versions of a metal detector. And then we've talked about Edison, of course. Edison has one big contribution to the telephone, which I, I think I was aware of, but I had forgotten. Edison gives us, hello? So the word hello existed prior to the telephone, but it was Thomas right. Edison who made that the way we answer the telephone. Before, hello was more of a exclamation of surprise. Like, hello, what have we here? Like, it was oh, that. It right. wasn't a greeting. It wasn't like, salutations or good to see right, you. Yeah. It was, hello, what's that? Like, it was, right. so you almost like pick it up and be like, hello? Like, it's almost like, what's that? So I thought it was kind of funny. It was like a, I think a surprise that then we just, now it's like, now it's like our greeting. And then you take that. And now we say it on the street. So it's a hello. It's like, you would never have said hello to a person on the street in 1860. Huh? It's right. It's kind of fascinating. Yeah. Alexander Graham Bell's choice was, and this is where you got to give the Simpsons credit because they gave it to Mr. Burns. Ahoy. <laughs> but at the time though, probably made just as much sense. Because that's also, that's like a surprise thing. I mean, it's right. a more... We're, la we're laughing because it's different. It's not, there's right. no right or wrong. 
Right. Right. It's it's but it's it's a little more like nautical, but that's like, you know, ahoy there, like that's Right, right. That's the same thing, basically. Right, same thing. Right. It has its own different origin, and that was Bell's choice, but uh outside of Mr. Burns, Edison Edison won that fight too. <laughs> <laughs> uh Bell died in nineteen twenty two, and one last interesting note is that uh until twenty thirteen we thought there was no recording of Alexander Graham Bell's voice. But in 2013, they actually found like an old wax cylinder thing and scientists were able to pull the audio off of it and it was Alexander Graham Bell. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it, it's, I mean, it's very hard to discern, but he even like says his voice and it's just, it's almost like, it's basically the, you know, 100 years ago, 120 years ago equivalent of testing one, two, three. This is Alexander Graham Bell. Like it's something along huh. those lines. But they were able to extract that just 10 years ago. Okay, so yeah, we cannot recommend that film little enough. (laughs) (laughs) Do not watch The Winds of Kitty Hawk. It sounds like there's some good rated documentaries, uh, you know, or you may watch some YouTube stuff. Yeah, just there's no reason to watch The Winds of Kitty Hawk. So hopefully we have better luck next time when we will discuss Teddy Roosevelt and the events of the film Wind and the Lion. And if you want to hear more, you can head over to our new Patreon on patreon.com slash historyandfilm. We just kind of continue the conversation with things that are maybe slightly less relevant. I think this week I go off on my rant on the way time zones should work and daylight savings time and all that, uh, among other things that we kind of get up to over there. So yeah, check that out over there. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can email me at simmons at tracknerds.com. And if you have time, recommend the show to a friend and give us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, we will catch you later.